Hi, well, my name's Pete, and let me add my welcome to Marks, especially if it's your first time connecting with us in our online services. Great to have you with us. As we continue in our series in the book of Job, which is a book all about suffering and comfort and hope in the midst of suffering. We've been calling this series Why? because of the way that when we're faced with suffering in general and faced with this pandemic and the suffering it's causing in particular, it is causing us to ask this why question. Why God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why is this happening, Lord? We're grappling with this question. And what we've been seeing throughout Job is that there has been a longing for Job to present his case before God. In Job chapter 23, verse two, he says this, even today my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would found out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. We have that phrase in English, um, I want my day in court. Well, today is Job's day in court as finally God shows up and he gets to present his case as it were to God himself. We've been seeing that Job has been grappling with his miserable comforters who's given him no comfort, no hope at all. But now God shows up and of course we're on tenderhooks as to how God is going to answer. And so what we're going to look at in our passage today is the first half of God's answer. Next week Mark is going to grapple with the end of the book of Job and the second half of God's answer. But as we look at it today, three things for us to see. First of all, God's silence. Secondly, God's design, and thirdly, God's nearness. First of all, God's silence, and by that I mean what God doesn't say. Now you may be looking at this and thinking, silence, what silence? Because God's response goes on for four chapters as words after words are poured forth in waves of speech from God, and you'll think there's not a lot of silence going on here. Well, what I mean by God's silence is that God does not say a number of things that we would expect him to say. So it's the things that God stays silent on. To recap, in the book of Job, we were given the kind of reveal as the readers in chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we got to see behind the curtain, as it were, to see the reason, or at least partially the reason for Job's suffering. Satan comes to God and, as the accuser, accuses Job of only fearing, that is only trusting and loving God for what he gets from God, for blessings from God, but not actually because of God himself. And so God, according to his mysterious purposes, allows Satan to afflict Job to prove Job's faith for the greater purpose, as it were, of love. And that is the tension that drives the whole book that we know behind the curtain, as it were, as readers, even though Job doesn't. And so here, when God shows up, the narrative tension is, of course, we think God is going to reveal to Job what we have known all along, and there will be resolution and reconciliation and fade to end credits. But that's just not what happens at all. Not in the slightest. Instead, God starts speaking about the design of his creation, and it's a real head-scratcher. It's not what Job was expecting. It's probably not what he wanted, or I, I doubt, but it is, in the end, what he needed. And similarly for us, it's not abstract, is it? We ask the question, why? Because we want God to show up and answer us and tell us why. Why is this happening? But very often, God doesn't. So why is God silent? Well, two reasons that I think that we need to grasp. First of all, the limits of human knowledge. It is by no means obvious that we as creatures could grasp the full complexity, the full majesty of God's purposes. 
We like to think that if God would just answer us, we would get it and it would help us, but it's just by no means obvious at all because God is creator and the size and complexity of the universe is such that we as creatures may very well not be able to get that. Let me give you an example. Um, last year, Rebecca and I had to take Oliver, our four-year-old, to go and get a vaccination. And he'd had a couple of jabs at doctors um, before, and so we knew that he wasn't going to look forward to it. We wanted to prepare him for it, but we, of course, couldn't explain to him how a vaccine works or why a vaccine is necessary and you know, give him the explanation. He's a toddler. He couldn't get his head around it. In fact, if we had tried, it probably would have just confused him and made it worse. All we could say to him was, Oliver, we love you, that there's going to be an injection. You're not going to like it, but we're here for you and you'll get through it. And it's for your good. That was all we could we could tell him. And as he cried, as the injection was given, we just held him tight and kept reassuring. We love you. It's for your good. Now, here's the point. The gap between Oliver as our son and us as adults is so big, maybe. But is not the gap between us as creatures and God, the creator, so much larger? And just as we wanted to, but we couldn't fully explain to God, sorry, to Oliver, the full purposes. So God can't. Well, it's by no means obvious that he could explain to us the full purposes of his complexity of why injustice seems to happen and why there is suffering in the world. And that's partly what's going on in this speech. God talks about the majesty and the extent of creation to help us to grasp that. And if we think about it, for example, there are, when we look up at the night sky, there are 100,000 million stars in the sky that we can see just in our galaxy alone. But our galaxy itself is just one galaxy amongst millions of millions of galaxies out there. The numbers are actually too big for us to get our brains around. The size of the universe, the complexity of the universe. And therefore it's by no means obvious that God could explain to us the complexity of his purposes of suffering that we would get. There's always going to be mystery. There's always going to be things we, we can't get. But God holds us tight and says, I love you. It's for your good. So the limits of human knowledge. Secondly, the difference between faith and sight. Satan's disputation with God in chapter 1 and chapter 2 was that Job does not have faith, does not fear or trust God because of God, but only because of what he gets from God, the blessings he gets from God. And therefore, there's a sense in which if God turns up and says to Job, Job, now I can show you how all of this was for your blessing. And Job says, ah, now that I can see how it blesses me, now I'm comforted. Now I can trust you, God, that actually Satan's case would be proved because Job would now only be trusting or receiving comfort from God because he now sees how it blesses him. In other words, now he sees rather than having to trust. Faith and sight are different. Uh, let me give you an example. Sometimes in team building exercises, um, one member of the team is blindfolded and put in a precarious situation so that that member of the team has to trust the other team members to guide him or her through the obstacle course. And it's about building trust within the team. Of course, you would complete the task as a team a lot quicker, wouldn't you, just by taking off the blindfold and letting the person do it themselves, but then they wouldn't have to trust the team then the bonds of relationship with the team wouldn't be strengthened and that's the whole point. In the same way, in these verses, we see that God to an extent keeps the blindfold on Job. And just like in a team building exercise, that's not comfortable. Job feels in a precarious situation. So also for us, God keeps the blindfold on us often in the purposes of suffering. We can't see everything and we feel precarious. 
But the reason he does that is not because he doesn't love us, but because he values us trusting him so highly that that is the greatest blessing he can give. And therefore, if he took the blindfold off and give us the great reveal, we would be able to say, ah, now I see. And then we wouldn't need to trust the difference between faith and sight. Well, if that's what God doesn't say, let's now think about what God does say. And let's look at God's design. I have to say, over the course of this week, I've been really grappling with these verses. I've read Job before and I've come across these verses before, and I've never really felt like I've understood why God's answer is the right answer to Job. First of all, you know, just that it spiels and comes forth with wave after wave about his creation, and Job's question is about suffering. So there seems to be a bit of a non sequitur there. Uh, secondly, God seems to be kind of rebuking Job, and as he pours forth the speech, you're kind of thinking, there's a danger that God himself is coming across like a bit of a miserable comforter, maybe like some of Job's friends. So how does God avoid that charge? In other words, how is God's speech to Job about all of these facets of creation answering Job's question about why? Why is this happening? Well, I think to answer that, we really need to grapple with what Job's question has really been. And the clue is given at the beginning of our passage in chapter 38, verse 2. God says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? That phrase, obscures my plans, literally means obscures my design. Plans means design here. And so the issue that God is addressing is that Job has been accusing God of a bad design in the universe. This is what Job says in chapter 27, verse 2. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked and my tongue will not utter lies. Do you see what he's saying? As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice. Job is saying that the problem is the injustice of it all. The problem is, is that the design of the world that means that Job, as an innocent person, not perfect, but innocent, he hasn't done anything wrong, he's blameless, is suffering. The design of that world where the innocent suffer is flawed. John Dixon, um, the Christian apologist, wrote a book a number of years back called If I Were God, I Would End All the Pain. And that's really the sentiment that's behind this. If I were God, I would have a different world. I would make a better world, a more just world, a world where the innocent don't suffer, a world where the blameless don't experience pain. That's a better world. And therefore, there's a design flaw in God's world. Similarly, in his book, A Grief Observed, at the tragic death of his wife, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like, deceive yourself no longer. C.S. Lewis is saying the same thing in his grief. He's saying that when you look at the world and when tragic things happen, like a wife that he loves dying of cancer and being taken away from him, he's saying there looks like there's a problem in the world. The world is unjust. There's a design flaw. And therefore, if there's a design flaw, it suggests that there's a problem with the designer. The injustice in the world seems to say that God is not just. And therefore, if the question is about design, that is how God's answer about the design of creation um, addresses Job's issue. 
God is in effect saying, I can't tell you the full purposes of why suffering happens, but let's look at the creation. If you think I'm a bad designer, here's my CV, as it were, to show you the intricacy, the majesty, the complexity, the perfection of my created order, so that you can trust and have faith that I am, in fact, a good designer. Well, let's look at how he does that. Well, what is remarkable in this poetry that scholars pour over is the beauty of it, but also the complexity of it, as it outlines the majesty and the scope and the grandeur and the intricacy of the created order. First of all, the poem in this first part that we're dealing with is actually split into two halves, and those two halves mirror the way that the creation was made in Genesis, which is that first of all, God sets up the creation, forms the expanse and um, divides water from land and earth from sky, for example, and then he populates creation. And so we have those two halves. The first half is from chapter 38, verse 4 to 38, verse 38, and that's about the expanse of creation. And then the second part from verse 39 to the end of chapter 39 is about God filling creation. It's all about the animal kingdom. And then within those two sections, this beautiful poem is set up in a very structured and orderly way. That is, in the first half of the poem about the expanse of creation, there are 10 stanzas, that's kind of 10 sections, dealing with 10 specific aspects of the expanse. And in the second part about the animal kingdom, there are seven stanzas or seven sections about seven different parts of the animal kingdom. Now, 10 and seven in the Hebrew Bible are really significant words, uh, sorry, significant numbers. Because 10 is about order, the orderliness of creation. So we get 10 times in Genesis, God said, we get the 10 commandments, for example. And seven is about perfection and completeness. So we have seven days in a week and God completes his, creator, his creation and rests on the seventh, on the Sabbath day. So this is about order and perfection. And that's implied just by the structure of the poem. But not only that, there's the majesty and the beauty of the poem. And I'd encourage you to go through and read it all. We didn't have time um, in our reading today, but to read it all and see that. And there's the scope of it. So we get everything from laying of the earth's foundations in verse four, from the bottom, that as it were, to the sun as the abode of light in verse 19. So from the depths to the heights, we get everything from the path of the thunderstorm in verse 25 to small drops of dew in verse 28. So we get the majestic and the grand and we get the small and the significant. We get all the animals from the lion to the locust, from the horse to the hawk. We get it from the moment of birth to the last breath of life. And the point is, as the waves of this beautiful created order and its perfection and its design sweep over us, is that God made it all. God sustained it all. God ordained it all. God designed it all. And God is saying, look at the design of my creation. Look at its perfection, its majesty, its intricacy. Do you doubt my design now in terms of justice? The illustration is sometimes given of a tapestry. And if you turn a tapestry over and see the backside of it, then you will just see um, frayed threads in a higgledy-piggledy design. You look at it and you'll say, well, there's no design here. It just looks completely chaotic. There's no beauty here. But then if you turn the tapestry over, then you see on the other side, the perfection, the beauty, the design, the wonder of it all. And in the same way, just because we can't see why God is doing something in this world, just because we can't see the design or see how it is just does not mean that it isn't. There isn't a design and that it is unjust. 
God is saying to Job and he's saying to us, if you think I'm a bad designer, if you're wanting reasons to trust me, look at my design of creation. Look at the harmony of the ecosystem of a rainforest. Look at the perfect balance of the forces in the cosmos that enable life to come about. Look at the intricacy and the majesty of it. Do you really doubt my design? I'm a good God. I've got a good design. And you might not be able to see the design for what's going on in life. We might not be able to understand why coronavirus has happened, why the vulnerable and the socially marginalized and the elderly are dying. And we might say, God, it looks so unjust. But he's saying to us, just because you can't see the design doesn't mean that there is no design. Just because you can't see why it's just and good doesn't mean that it isn't just and good. Trust me, trust me. Finally, and more briefly, our third point, God's nearness. Sometimes the small details are the most significant. And I want us to see how the passage starts. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord, notice that the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. First, we may really um, easily miss the shock that actually what happens here is that God shows up. Because we might be familiar with the Bible or because we might be familiar with the book of Job, that just might miss us as a shock. But for the people reading it in the ancient Near East when this was first written, that would have been utterly shocking. In preparation for this sermon series, I've been looking at some of the other ancient Near Eastern um, literature around um, poems of suffering. So the Akkadian poem of suffering, Babylonians, Persians, for example. And what is striking is in none of those poems is it even entertained as a possibility that the gods would show up to interact personally with the sufferer. It just would not even in the theology of the ancient Near East. And indeed, in no other religions that I know of today, does God show up in this way? But in Christianity, God shows up when we suffer. And so here, God shows up. And that is an utter shock that God, the infinite, the transcendent God, would become near, would show up to speak with Job. And actually, he not only speaks with Job, but he addresses Job. He gives him the respect to address the things that Job has been complaining about. He shows that he's been listening to Job. Now, sure, there's a robust discussion, and there's a lot about that which is related to the particular culture that they were in. Job wants his day in court, and God gives him his day in court. But God gives him the dignity of actually answering him in a discussion. Not only does God show up, but notice how God shows up. Throughout the whole book of Job, there's only three places where God's referred to by capital L-O-R-D, which is the name of God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the I am God. The Hebrew people would call it Hashem, the name. It's the revealed name of God. If you like, it's a difference between God's title and God's name. We might think of Queen Elizabeth. Queen is her title. Elizabeth is her name. And of course, if you were interacting with the queen, you would never dream of referring to her as Elizabeth. That would be so disrespectful. You would have to call her mum, a respect of relation to her title as queen, your majesty, but not Elizabeth. But then imagine if she said to you, you can speak to me and refer to me as Elizabeth. The intimacy, the nearness. Well, when God shows up here, he says, you can speak to me as the Lord. There's only three places in Job it happens in chapter one and two, when he's uh, in disputation with Satan, he's referred to as the Lord of his covenant faithful purposes. In chapter 19, verse two, and in the Q&A, you can ask me why that is afterwards. Um, and here at the end, 
Throughout the rest of it, Job and his miserable comforters always refer to him by his title as God. But here he's referred to by his name. In other words, God comes near. God becomes intimate to Job as he answers him. And supremely, of course, that is just a foretaste of what God does in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, God comes near. And what this is saying to us is that God is not only saying, trust me and trust my good design, but he doesn't just bellow that to us from cloud nine, distant and disconnected from our suffering, but he enters into our world. He draws alongside us in our suffering and then mysteriously and majestically in the person of Jesus Christ, he actually experiences our suffering alongside us. So he's not only saying, trust my good design, but he's saying, my son, my daughter, I'm here with you. Now that he's given his spirit, anyone who trusts in him can have his presence with them, can have this type of intimacy and nearness of knowing God is with you, of not just knowing God as a distant abstract God, but knowing God's name with you alongside you, the God who suffers, the God who understands, God's good design and God's nearness. And the person, Jesus Christ, also was not a stranger to perplexity. Very often when we suffer, we ask the question, why God, why are you doing this? Well, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asked the same question. As he said, if there's any other way, God, take this cup of suffering away from me. He was questioning God's good design. He was saying it doesn't make full sense. There must be a better plan, another plan. But when the answer came back from his father, there is no other way. Jesus humbly trusted God and trusted his good design, his purposes. And because Jesus went to the cross and experienced that perplexity, that suffering, and yet was raised in glory for our salvation, so we can now look and we can say, God, your purposes are good purposes. Because Jesus went through perplexity and suffered greatly and came out the other side. So we, in our perplexity, can trust you as you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death and suffering, that we will come out the other side. God, you're a good God. There may be aspects where God will remain silent, things we can't fully grasp. That is part of our creaturely nature and we need to allow there to be a difference between us and God. But God does not leave us alone. God wants us to trust him with his good design. He gives us many good reasons. The majesty of creation, the wonder and the wisdom of the cross. He says, trust me in my good design. And he also draws alongside us in our grief and in our suffering and says, my son, my daughter, I'm here with you. I will walk with you through this valley. Trust me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you draw alongside us in our suffering and you want us to trust you and so you give us um, great reasons to trust you, the majesty, the intricacy, the design of creation, so that when we doubt your goodness and your justice and the design of the world, we might look at that and say, you are a good God, you are a good designer. And supremely, of course, we see it in the cross, the majesty, the wisdom of the plan of the cross. Help us to trust you. When the blindfold is on, when we can't see the way ahead, Lord, help us to know your nearness and to keep trusting you and keep walking with you, just as Job did, that we might know restoration and we might know hope and comfort. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.